felt a, a connection to the story of July Perry. I think he was a man ahead of his time. You're talking about a black man 100 years ago who had considerable wealth, considerable land. He had the audacity to organize his community to vote in a presidential election. That's Florida State Senator Randolph Bracey talking about a man who once lived in the area the senator now represents. July Perry lived there 100 years ago until he was lynched in November in 1920 in Ocoee, Florida. But how did he become the target of a lynch mob on that November election night? It's what we set out to find out while working on the Ocoee Massacre documentary. I'm Vanessa Eccles, and I'm joined by journalist Karen Parks, whose reporting on the documentary sets the scene for why black people settle there and what made July Perry such a prominent figure in the story of Ocoee. So, Karen, let's go back to a little history of the Ocoee settlement. What happened during the 1850s? Well, the first settlers came to Ocoee after a malaria outbreak that they were trying to escape. And when they got here, they also brought their slaves. And then early white settlers began to establish homesteads, homesteads, property, homes for them to live in near Stark Lake in the 1850s. Now, that was after the Seminole Indians resettled west of the Mississippi River or fled to South Florida. And then James D. Stark, uh, Ocoee's first white settler, is listed as a physician and slave owner back in 1855. Now, that's according to the Orange County tax roll, Bluford Sims. A former captain in the Confederate Army arrived in Orange County around 1867. Now, he built a house and began planting and selling citrus trees. Now, at that time, in the late 1800s, that's when African Americans began to come here to Ocoee. So, in case people are wondering, like, why are we going all the way back to 1850? Because I think we need to understand what was going on. Right that led to July Perry and Moses Norman mm -hmm. arriving. So by the accounts that we've been able to document, when did they get here and why did they come to Ocoee? Well, this part is a little unclear, but what the historians are telling us is that they got here in the late 1800s. And they came here because this was considered the land of opportunity. Farming was profitable. Now, both of them got here from South Carolina. They um, built homes. Uh, July Perry became a leader in the African-American community, deacon in the church, independent farmer. And then Moses Norman purchased and worked a 100-acre family orange grove. And get this, Vanessa, he was one of the first car owners in Ocoee. He was the first one to buy an automobile. Wow. All right, so during that time in the South, cotton was king in terms of agriculture. But that was not the case in Central Florida. It's something rather unique here. So what was the, you know, what was driving the agricultural engine here? Citrus was king. Now, one of our historians told us that you could make more money picking citrus than you could picking cotton, believe that or not. Now get this, Vanessa, you could make 40 cents on 100 pounds of cotton, but you could pick oranges and make 75 cents a box. So back then, that was a lot of money and will eventually explain the wealth of many of the African-Americans that moved here and became homeowners. And we think that July Perry and Moses Norman came from South Carolina, right? Mm -hmm. and that's, that's what we think. Okay. And, yes. that, and a lot of them, a lot of people may have come mm -hmm. because of the citrus. Mm -hmm. So for July Perry, how was he making a living and how does 
Moses Norman figure into what they were doing? You know, Vanessa, it's, it's interesting, and the answer is actually quite easy. They do what we do. They worked and they saved their money, and they knew how to cultivate land. Now, Perry and Norman, they were friends, and like I mentioned, we believe that they both moved here from South Carolina. They were business partners. Norman was also an independent farmer, and he was considered very wealthy. Now, get this. I found this to be a very interesting tidbit. Now, he was best known for his cucumbers, and Norman said, well, folks would say that Norman grew some of the best cucumbers in the state. Now, Perry was a labor broker, so we have to ask ourselves, what is a labor broker? Well, because people will hear that term a lot in the documentary. Mm -hmm. So explain how significant that was. And first of all, what is it? Right. Well, the white community, get this, would have to go through Perry or another labor broker to obtain black workers for their farmers or households. So see, they needed a labor broker to solidify that deal. So the white people during this time would have to come through July Perry or another labor broker. That's right. And you can only imagine what kind of power that gave him. Now, the downside is their wealth may have attracted attention, especially Moses Norman. And he probably, uh, according to historians, had no problem flaunting his his wealth because mm -hmm. he had worked hard. Mm -hmm. He worked hard. And like I mentioned, he saved. But during this time, black people were becoming equally, if not more successful than whites. And we're told Norman was ostentatious, like you just mentioned about his wealth. He didn't care. He made no apologies about none of it. And as I mentioned, he was one of the first owners of an automobile, which again, was back then. And, and you know, Vanessa, what I liked about Norman is that he made no apologies for his success. None whatsoever. Because he had worked hard for it, as we mentioned. Worked hard and saved. So do we know anything about July Perry's personality in terms of being successful at the time? We don't. What we know is that the two were friends. The two were very, um, they were affluent African Americans within the community. They were leaders. They were both farmers. They were both landowners. That's what we know. So Mr. Perry and Mr. Norman, at some point, though, started to also get interested in getting black people to vote in that upcoming election in 1920. Vanessa, as you can imagine, tone and tenor of the times was considered divisive. It was very hostile uh, during this time. And according to sources, the number of lynchings of African-Americans increased from 38 in 1970 to get this to 58 in 1918, 1920 um, was a presidential election year, and November 1920 was the first general election held after the end of World War I. White Republican politicians were working with African-American leaders like Perry and Norman to register African-American voters who tended to vote Republican. During that time, exactly. During that time. So these two men were not only well-known in... Okoe's black community, but also well-known in the white community because you had to go through them to get s some workers, and then becoming active in thinking about, hey, maybe we should vote. Maybe we should get other black people to vote. So they were well-known. They were prominent. Right, right, in both communities. Because remember, you're talking about attorneys and former judges who were also Republican who were using Perry and Norman to get folks registered in the African-American community. 
Now, while all of this was going on, though, the Klan was very active. There was even a Klan march in Orlando just a few days before what we're talking about here, election night. They stayed marches in, uh, staged marches in Jacksonville, Orlando, obviously to intimidate African Americans before the election. And get this, this was another tidbit that I found. It was also told that the Ku Klux Klan grandmaster sent letters to Orlando attorneys and other Republican politicians that I just mentioned who were trying to register African Americans. They said if they attempted to vote, there would be trouble. So there was a warning. But despite all of that, apparently it didn't scare July Perry or Moses Norman from trying to get people to register to vote, and it didn't scare them away from the polling place. As of right now, there is no record of Perry actually going to the polls to vote. But we do know that Norman went to the polls to vote, but he was told that he was not permitted to vote because he had not paid his poll tax. So then what he did, he came back to Orlando and talked to the um, Judge Cheney who was helping him out. And Judge Cheney said, no, I need for you to go back. I need for you to register to vote, and I need for you to record the names of anyone who was not permitted to vote and record the names of polling officials who denied anyone to vote that day. Now, going back to July Perry, apparently their historians and family members um, have some different stories about whether he actually voted because family members are saying, no, there is some historical record that shows that he voted, that he may have been the first black man in the community to vote. We don't know for sure. You know, a lot of this, after talking with a lot of these researchers, after talking with a lot of the historians, you know, they a lot of their information came from um, uh, descendants of slaves, um, obviously relatives, but these are people who have been around for quite some time. Um, some of the relatives were um, in their late 90s. So we are getting different accounts of different um happenings back during then, even from the polling place to leading up to that day. So we're just trying to decipher it all right now. And again, the historians say maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We're not sure. And let me go back to Norman now. When he returned to the polling place, he was denied again, obviously, the opportunity to vote. And this is another one of those stories where there are gray areas. There are several accounts, there are conflicting reports related to that second trip. Now, in one account, um, we're told that there was a gun found in his car that was taken away, and then they sent him home. Another account says that a group of Okoe residents found the gun in his car and assaulted him, and then that's when he left to hide at Perry's home. Now, so the only common denominator that we have in both of these accounts is that we do know, in fact, that Norman went to Perry's house that night to hide. In talking with historians, they seem to have some different stories as well mm -hmm. about what happened. Mm -hmm. It sounds very confusing, so how do we get to the bottom mm -hmm. of what happened, or can we ever? Well, I, I don't think so, because we're talking about something that happened a hundred years ago. And these historians and researchers that we've been talking to, they've been digging into this now, Vanessa, for more than two decades, and they're still piecing this together. So when I asked Francina Boykin, I'm like, will we ever know the truth? She said, we don't know. We don't know because this is research that can go on and on and on and on. The story continues to change. They continue to find new, more revealing documents. So we don't know. 
here's what we can agree upon, for the historians can agree upon. That's right. He goes to July Perry's he house. He goes to July Perry's house. Now, apparently, we don't know, and we've heard that July Perry was also, there were also other African Americans hiding out at Perry's house. We don't know that, but we know that Norman went to his house. We know a posse showed up at the house. What happened after that, you're going to hear several stories, but it ended up being a bloody massacre. That much we do know for sure. Absolutely. They get to the home, Mr. Perry's home, and as we mentioned, that is when things take a drastic and violent turn. So the significance of them is that it transformed what would have otherwise been a rogue group of angry people into really a government actor, uh, a group of people who were following lawful orders instead of just taking some sort of rogue violent action. All hell break loose. That's next on the Okoe Massacre Podcast. The Okoe Massacre Podcast is a Cox Media Group original produced by Vanessa Eccles, Karen Parks, Melanie Holt, Deanna Albritton, and Inej Broom in collaboration with executive producer Darlene Jones, craft editor Tristan Peterson, and graphic artist Cindy Kelly.